0: Hello! 20 minutes. The first song we sang, sang says God can do impossible things, right? <laughs> right, so this, So yeah, don't fear. This sheet will be, can be a resource for you. Uh, when we actually hit the list of things, we're not going to go to most of those verses. But Anyway, so yeah, as Corey mentioned, uh, my name's Nick, and we've been going through 1 Timothy, Uh, for most of the summer. And it's been awesome. Uh, It's been really cool. We've gotten to hear from uh, a bunch of people that don't normally preach, um, me included. And it's been really cool. It's been encouraging and edifying. And just to, so we're in chapter three. I don't know if you mentioned that, but you can go ahead and flip to 1 Timothy chapter three. And while you're doing that, just a quick review, just a couple points about chapters one and two. In chapter one, we saw Paul open up with People messing up in the faith. Leaders messing up and leading other people astray. But in contrast to that, Paul is enabled by Christ to be a pattern for us to follow. And those people are not. But in therefore chapter 2, Paul wants us to pray for those in leadership. That they would allow us to live in such a way that God's will for all to be saved can be facilitated through our lives. And so last week then, in the last half of chapter 2, we saw how women have a specific role in the church and how their lives through that role can be a testimony of Christ. And this week, we're just going to look at one specific role that men can have uh, in the church and how their lives through that role can be a testimony to Christ. And so if you are in the passage, we're going to go through verses 1 through 7. And verse 1 says, This is a true saying. If a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife. Vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach, not given to wine, no striker, not greedy of filthy lucre, but patient, not a brawler, not covetous, one that ruleth well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. For if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must have a good report of them which are without, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil." Let's go to the Lord and ask him to teach us. Heavenly Father, uh, we come before you tonight, and Lord, we just thank you for your word. Um, thank you so much that, that you care for us and have, have written your word down for us so that we can go back and check it and see that it, it hasn't ever changed and, and always know what you require of us. Um, Lord, thank you so much for dying on the cross to make it even possible to know you. Um, the fact that, that we could even think that maybe we could look like you is incredible, um, and it's all because of you and what you've done. Um, I pray that your Spirit would be our teacher tonight as we go through um, these few verses, and and Lord, just that you would open up uh, our understanding of them, and that that they would be applicable to our lives, and um, Lord, that you would get the glory through all of it. Please be our teacher tonight. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, so basically tonight, we're, so we're going through the qualifications, at least in First Timothy, for a bishop, and. The three points are basically just how I've scattered them and broken them down. Um, so they'll be mostly linear. Um, but the first blank is what I'm going to call the upward qualification, which is desire. And you see that in verse three, or in, in verse one of chapter three. But before we know what you're being desired, there's a couple words that I feel like we should define. And so the first one is office. So if you're desiring the office of a bishop, so what does is, what is that word office mean? And I gave you one example verse on your sheet, Genesis 41, 13. Basically, in context, um, that is where Pharaoh in Egypt, king of Egypt, had the, a butler and a baker and the story of Joseph, and he gets thrown in prison, if you're familiar with that. And the butler and is restored to his office it says in the verse and it says and it came to pass as he interpreted to us so it was me he restored unto mine office and him he hanged his office meaning of butlership and so the word office there's i've got plenty of other verses you know there's an office of a mid of a midwife there's a priest's office there's paul is the in the office of the apostle to the gentiles so the word office is it's literally just like an official recognized position it's like your job And so then that leads us to the office of the bishop. And so what is a bishop? Basically, the word bishop means overseer. And we don't use that word a lot, but we say pastor. A bishop is a pastor. The word pastor means shepherd. Um, So the the Bible refers to a bishop or a pastor or an elder, kind of can use all three of those terms to be one and the same. So leader in the church. 1 Peter 2.25, Peter, speaking of Christ, says, For ye were a sheep going astray but are now returned unto the shepherd and bishop of your souls. Christ, obviously, is the guy in charge, right? We saw in Colossians last summer that that Christ is the head of the church. And and he's the one that watches for your soul. Also, of course, he's the one that's in charge. Well, uh, and so you see that word bishop here. A pastor or a bishop in like picture by name is the guy in charge in the church. And he watches over your soul. And you've got a few other verses listed there that we don't have time to go through. But the last one, 1 Peter 5, 1 through 4, it says, The elders which are among you I exhort, who am also an elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind, neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being in samples to the flock, And when the chief shepherd shall appear, ye shall receive a a crown of glory that fadeth not away. And so there that word elder can also refer to a bishop. It doesn't always have to. But in short, listen, a bishop is also called a pastor and sometimes called an elder in scripture. In the Way of Life Encyclopedia of the Bible and Christianity, fifth edition by David Cloud, he says, he puts it this way, pastor refers to the church leader as the shepherd of the flock speaking of his work of teaching and nurturing and, prof- and protecting the assembly. Elder refers to the church leader's maturity and responsibility and the fact that he is to be an example to the church. Bishop refers to the church leader's authority, to the fact that he is to rule the church. And so if you go through that list of verses I provided for you, you'll basically see that a pastor and a bishop, they hold the office of ruler and oversight of the church, to watch for your souls, to be an example, to speak the word, to feed the flock, to give an account to Christ, to perfect the saints, to do the work of the ministry, and to edify the body of, the Christ, of Christ. And these are all great things, they're all good things, which is how verse one ends. It says, "He desireth a good work." And I mean, that makes sense, um, but I thought it was cool. I looked up the phrase "Good work," and the first mention of that phrase is actually in the Old Testament. It's in Nehemiah 2:18. And it says, "Then I told them of the hand of my God, which was good upon me, as also the king's words that he had spoken unto me." And they said, "Let us rise up and build." So they strengthened their hands for this good work. And in context, in the book of Nehemiah, which is cool, it just so happens to line up. We're starting the book of Nehemiah on Sunday mornings, um, so join us for that. But in the book of Nehemiah is about rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem, which are, we also looked Sunday. A connection for us is Proverbs 25:28, and it says, "He that hath no rule over his own spirit is like a city that is broken down and without walls." So, man, rebuilding the walls is like a pic- a picture of building men's spirits, building their inner man. And so, that's what a pastor does, which is just that's just really cool. I thought that was really encouraging. So, if you desire this position, man, you desire a good work. And Paul had a pastoral desire in Colossians 1:9 through eleven, where he says, For this cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you, and to desire that ye might be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that ye might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might, according to his glorious power, unto all patience and long suffering with joyfulness. Paul wanted to be a part of seeing people grow in the Lord. And he was in the official position to do it. And look, simply because you have that desire doesn't mean you have to be a pastor, but holding that office will give you the, the best opportunity. And being a pastor is no easy job, ask any of our pastors. I think I've heard Jeff say that it's actually the hardest job. You're underpaid, you're overworked, and you deal with people all the time, which can be the hardest part of any job <laughs> that you have. Um, but, but they love to do it. And so you better make sure that it's your desire if you want the office of a bishop. Now I'm going through a transition at work, and I'm getting an office. Um, I've always had my job since I started there, I guess, but I didn't always have an office until now. You know what? It's not too much different for every Christian, really. We all have a vocation. We just might not all have an office. <laughs> okay, and that's a little different use of that word. Um, but but really, as far as every Christian, man, every Christian has a vocation, and we should desire. The Lord to use us in the vo- in that vocation. In Ephesians four one, Paul says, "I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called." We're called to serve the Lord. We should desire that. In Second Corinthians three six, God has made us all able ministers of the New Testament. And so, in in thinking about your desire, I, I ran a word study on that word desire, and it's of course it's all through Scripture. But I found a connection that stood out to me that I wasn't expecting. It was pretty interesting. And basically the connection is your desires are connected with life and death. In Genesis 3.6, the first time we see that word, um, it's, it's in context of Adam and Eve and the woman eating the tree. And In 3.6 it says, And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took it the fruit thereof and did eat and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. And Eve uh, Eve allowed Satan to deceive her into thinking that her desire was to eat of that tree, and she disobeyed God. And in her desire of seeking life, she died, which are the consequences that the Lord said she would face, right? Okay, but what about the last time desire appears in scripture? In Revelation 9, 6, it says, and in those days shall men seek death and shall not find it, and shall desire to die, and death shall flee from them. And that's interesting. At the end of the day, I mean, you desire what God wants for your life and if you think differently, you're deceived by Satan. And at the end of the world, people are even seeking the consequences that God said you would have from eating the tree in the first place. And they can't even get that. So desiring death, they find life. And kind of, okay, more in the sort of the middle of scripture. What about Jesus? In Luke 22:15, it says, and he said unto them, with desire, I've desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Jesus desires to eat the Passover with his disciples before he dies, that all may live. Even Paul, Paul's desire, he desired to be a minister, of course, but Paul wanted to reach Israel. Israel was his kinsman, according to the flesh. A couple, I think I have Romans 9 and 10 on your sheet. Paul desired to reach Israel, but in Romans 11, Paul held the office of the apostle of the Gentiles, even in, in serving the Lord, Paul had to die to his desires so that others could have life. So listen, what you desire is leading you somewhere. It's either to life or death. And desiring the office of a bishop means you're going to have to die to yourself. And really, that spiritual life that, that is offered through that to other people will be worth it. And, and likewise, serving the Lord in any capacity is going to require dying to yourself. So, set your affection on things above, like it says in Colossians 3.2. Desire the right things. Desire the office of a bishop. Desire to fulfill your vocation in the Lord. And walk worthy of that vocation. And so now, how do, how do you walk worthy? We'll get into that. So, the next two points really are kind of one and the same. We're going we're gonna to run through this list. And the next two points, I just, it's just how I organized them. So, the first one is what I'm going to call the outward qualification, which is blameless. You see that in verses 2 through 3 and 7. And really, there's 16 character qualities that that we see in this passage. There's another 8 in Titus, which we're not even going to touch. But we're just going to run through this list. Most of these, these we're not going to go to the verses, but they're on your sheet. There's plenty of verses on your sheet if you want them. Please go look them up later. Um, But... So anyway, so we're going to run through these. But the first one, uh, the reason I made your, your blank blameless in verse 2 is because this is the overarching qualification if I had to pick one. This is the one to rule them all. It's the catch-all. Listen, if you're found in fault of any of the other qualifications, well, then you're not blameless. Then you're found in fault of this one. And so when it says this, what does it mean? Does it mean you're sinless? Listen, no, because Romans 3.23 says, for all of sin to come short of the glory of God. We know that. But praise the Lord, in Colossians 1, 21-22, it says, And you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. So praise the Lord. The Lord's taking care of our, our blamability from a salvation standpoint by what he did on the cross. So that's awesome. So of course, you know, when we come to the office of a, of a pastor, no salvation is a qualification, right? But that's not exact, of, that's obvious. We're, we're not talking about that necessarily. But it also doesn't necessarily mean never blamed. Christ was blamed. I mean, they killed him. They blamed him for stuff, but never rightly so, which is your key. So, in First Thessalonians 2.10, it says, Ye are witnesses, and God also, how holily and justly and unblameably we behaved ourselves among you that believe. So this is your general behavior. You, you should be generally blameless before others. In Luke 1.6, it's, uh, it's talking about Zacharias and Elizabeth, which are John the Baptist's parents. And it says, And they were both righteous before God, excuse me, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. So y- your obedience to God's word, you should be blameless in that. And so this is your behavioral patterns. And they should be righteous before men and God. And really, that's what all of these characteristics are going to describe character qualities of your life, not necessarily one-time events. You want to pick any one-time event out of my life where I didn't follow the Lord. Well, I'm not blameless in that. Okay, but as a general pattern, these are character qualities of your life. And you'll see that in all of these. So number two, uh, the husband of one wife. And we love to overcomplicate this one, but it means exactly what it says. Don't overcomplicate it. It means have one wife at one time. Or women have one husband at one time. In in an Old Testament context, a lot of people had a lot of wives. So it makes sense, for that alone, it's worth mentioning on this list. Especially back, I mean, in more biblical days, that that was still more of a thing. But in today's context, it still makes sense. I mean, people have affairs all the time. They sleep around before they're married. Um, they commit adultery in their minds. There's a standard, uh, Divorce is everywhere. Divorce rates are everywhere, in and out of the church. And there's biblical reasons for divorce. Uh, first of all, Romans 7 is, is, is talking about death, which is you are released from marriage in that circumstance, so that's not divorce. Um, it's also the only circumstance in which both parties will be blameless. But the two reasons for, for divorce will be abandonment and adultery. And you can see abandonment in 1 Corinthians seven twelve through fifteen, and you can see adultery or fornication in Matthew nineteen through through nine, and and in either of those circumstances, Jesus makes. He makes allowance for man the bishop to ha- to go through a divorce for the right reasons and still be blameless in the matter, and it doesn't disqualify him necessarily from the pastorate. And what okay, well, what about an unbiblical divorce? Well, okay. In such case, that man also won't be blameless. So we don't really need to discuss it any further than that tonight. All right, moving on. Number three, vigilant. Vigilant means to be watchful, to be attentive to danger. First uh, Peter 5.8 is talking about your adversary, the devil, and it says be sober, be vigilant. So you need to watch out. He's a lion. You're watching out for danger. Um, in Acts 20, 29-30, it talks about wolves. From a pastoral standpoint, wolves come in and enter among you. You need to watch out for that danger too from a pastoral standpoint. So you need to be vigilant. Number four, sober. It's, it's clear-minded, in control of your mind and senses. Uh, obviously, we use that in connection with drunkenness, which is a very clear picture. But it's also more than that. I mean, you can be, uh, you can le- be full of the media or be full of just worldly standards and you, you're not having a clear mind in that sense. And you can see that that reference later in Acts twenty six, five of good behavior. Colossians 1.10 says that ye might walk worthy of the Lord and to all pleasing. Look, good behavior. You know what that is. Walk worthy of the Lord and and all, all pleasing. Given to hospitality. I gave you a verse there uh, about widows taking care of people, being very hospitable towards others. Seven apt to teach. This is the only skill based character on the list. Praise the Lord. Um, and Matthew seven is an example of Jesus teaching with authority, and the pastor should be able to do that because he should know the Bible. Eight given to wine, and so so what does this mean? The real question, and, and the reason this is hairy, is people: what does the word "given to" mean? And so remember what I mentioned earlier: like these are qualifications um, that are patterns of your life; they're not necessarily one-time events. So. Don't take a one time event of wine touching your lips, take or taking one sip one time under any circumstance ever, when getting drunk isn't even in question to mean you're given to wine. That's not what it says, and if that's God if that's what God meant, he would have said that. And to, to suddenly treat this one as a one time event is like inconsistent with what we're saying about all of these. Okay, and actually Paul told Timothy and later in this in this in First Timothy, in chapter five twenty-three, it says, drink no longer water, but use a little wine for thy stomach's sake and thine often infirmities. So, so there, it can't mean that. And okay, basically, Paul told Timothy, in a sense, to use it like a medicine. And there's a historical argument to be made that the water wasn't pure, and the wine is gonna help his stomach and help that whole situation. And so I guess I would say anybody that teaches that this is a one-time event should also teach that you can't have medicine either. That is influence over you. Also, though, this phrase can't, not, can't mean simply drunk. Given to can't simply mean drunk. First of all, to be consistent with our approach to this list, it would have to mean don't be a drunk because that's a character quality of your life. But second, it, it can't mean that. And I'm going to leave you hanging. Come back next week to see what is, in my opinion, the greatest offense of why it can't mean that. But for tonight, suffice it to say this. In verse 2, we saw given to hospitality. Well, if you're going to interpret that to mean, given to to mean drunk, what are you going to say, drunk with hospitality? Look, that's, that's not, that's an out-of-balance situation. If you're drunk with hosp- hospitality, then you're erring towards the side of grace and throwing away truth, and that's not what the Lord desires of your life. So that, it doesn't make sense to, if you're going to be consistent, it doesn't make sense to interpret it that way either. So what then does it mean? Before that, let me be completely clear. Hear me say this. Being drunk is obviously sin. We're not even discussing that. That's blatantly wrong for anyone in ev- anyone, certainly anyone in leadership. No Christian should get drunk, period. The need for, that, for this passage to say that is just as little as its need is to say, don't sin. That's obvious. Ephesians 5.18 says don't get drunk. So its meaning is actually more strict than simply drunk. The phrase given to occurs something like 72 times in the Bible. And it's very clearly a phrase that's used to communicate that one thing is possessed by another. So it's a possessive term in scripture. So wine or alcohol should have no possession over your life. We could understand it to mean addicted to. However, when I say that, I don't necessarily mean a physical chemical addiction because out of all of the 72 times that it is referred to and used in scripture, the word given to, is used in context with something that it wouldn't even make sense to say you're physically addicted to. So it, so it doesn't mean that suddenly when it comes to this one, wine's the only one that, that would even be possible to, to make an argument for. So, wha- so what I believe it means is it means you have no desire or will for it. Your body has no craving for it. You have zero bonds to it in your life. People don't make any connection between alcohol and your life. Wine or alcohol is not possessive of you and your life and your testimony in any way, shape, or form. And since the Bible's overarching teaching would be to avoid alcohol and warns against it, it's no surprise that it's listed here as a qualification for bishops. So I'll give you, out of a multitude of verses, Proverbs 20 is one verse. It says, "Wine is a mocker, mocker Strong drink is raging, and whosoever is deceived thereby is not wise." And 1 Corinthians 6:12 and 1 Thessalonians 5:22, I'll combine those, and, and so it then becomes an issue of your liberty in Christ. It's an issue of liberty and love for others. Abstain from all appearance of evil and don't be brought into the power of any. So, my counsel to you would basically be don't drink. I don't drink. Uh, I don't think pastors necessarily should drink. I don't necessarily think that the Bible is teaching you that wine ever can't touch your lips in this passage. All right, so moving on. No striker, verse 3. What does that mean? It means not physically violent. And Second Timothy 2.24 says to be gentle unto all men. Not greedy of filthy lucre. Okay, don't love money. Pretty clear. Don't be greedy of that and don't love money. Patient, number 11. So this would be able to wait and, and, and to endure. And always, it, it, it could also mean that you're always appropriate. 1 Thessalonians 5.14 says to be patient toward all men. And Jesus, of course, we would say would be an example of all of these. He was patient toward all men but I think I put an example in your sheet of Matthew 12, 8 through 14. When Jesus heals a man on the Sabbath day and he didn't wait to heal him after the Sabbath, he on purpose did it right then because it was appropriate and people were waiting to see what he was gonna do. All right, 12, not a brawler. And so we talked about strikers physically violent. Not a brawler then is mentally violent. Not always looking for a fight. In Titus 3, 2, it says to not be brawlers, but gentle, showing all meekness unto all men. Proverbs 15, 1, a soft answer turneth away wrath, but grievous words stir up anger. You're not always looking for a fight. 13, not covetous. Well, this is kind of one of the first, first of the 10 commandments. And if you're covetous, you're not content with God's provision or his providence. So you shouldn't be covetous. 14, having a good report of them which are without. And basically, this is your testimony among non-believers, in Second Corinthians eight twenty to twenty one, it says, "Avoiding this, that no man should blame us in this abundance which is administered by us, providing for honest things, not only in the sight of the Lord, but here it is also in the sight of men, in the sight of men and of the Lord." And this is your testimony. And so I would say these are what I'm calling the outward qualifications required for every pastor. But remember, who a pastor is? He's the shepherd, and, and he's a bishop. He watches for your souls. He is an example, we saw in 1 Peter 3. So the pastor is not a super Christian. He's the standard Christian. He's the example to follow. And really, we're, we're supposed to be striving to look like Christ, right? All of us. So Christ desires all of us to meet these qualifications. Since that's the case, it'd be hypocritical if they weren't requirements for the leader then. So every Christian should be striving to see these characters in his or her life. 1 Timothy 1.16 says, for a pattern to them which should hereafter believe on him to life everlasting. Paul says, hey, these things, Paul enable me to be a pattern, a pattern for you to follow. These should be true of you as well. He said in 1 Corinthians 11.1, be followers of me as I also am of Christ. Paul fulfilled these qualifications and so should you. And so in verse uh, 7, I'll give you a fair warning about the snare of the devil. And this is connected with with your testimony and a good report. And the snare of the devil is, is to take you captive by entangling your testimony in reproach. And just the word snare, you know what a snare is? Think of like a survival situation and you make a snare. It's, it's frequently used in picture with a bird. When it's caught super quick at the last moment of escape by one limb and it's entangled or stuck. And Satan wants to catch you just like that. He wants to catch you just enough to hold you down and to stop your walk and render you ineffective. And if you've ever had anybody have a problem with your testimony, if you've ever blown it, man, that thing follows you around and it holds you down. And that's what Satan wants. And from a pastoral standpoint, 2 Corinthians 6, 3, giving no offense in anything that the ministry be not blamed to bring it full circle back to blameless. Finally, what I'm going to call the inward qualification, which is experience. So jumping back in, backing up now to verses 4 and 5, the 15th one we'll, that we'll see for tonight. Ruleth well his own house. In Titus 1-6 it says, If any be blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of right or unruly. So you're ruling well your own house. Your children are doing what's right, your household is doing what's right. And it's because you're loving and guiding them to do that. The model home should be a picture of the model church. If you can't even faithfully rule your own house, people that you love and care for, how will you take care of the church? Like the church, your home will consist of people of different physical and spiritual maturities. And you are lovingly ruling and guiding and taking care of them. Prove that you can do this in your own home first. I mean, your first ministry it's to your wife and to your kids, to your house. If you, can't, if you can't be ruling them well, how are you going to be expected to rule the church of God well? And I don't know if I look, put Luke 1034 or 35 on your sheet or not, but that's just another use of the word take care. And it's with the good Samaritan. In context of the good Samaritan taking care of the man that was robbed and left for dead, he takes care of him with money and with love and with sacrificial giving. And that's how we should take care of the church. It's how you should take care of your household. And finally, 16, not a novice, in verse 6. So I'll define this as not new to Christ, not new to the word, and not new to ministry. And in Hebrews 5, 12 through 13, it talks about being unskillful in the word. And if you are that, then you're a babe. You're a novice. But this doesn't necessarily have to mean physical age. It can mean, it, it's spiritual age because Paul admonishes Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.12. says, let no man despise thy youth. So Timothy was considered a youth. But yet, he fulfilled these qualifications to be a pastor. And because it's true that if, you, if you're a novice in the word, you're unskillful in, it, unskillful in it, then a novice is also easily susceptible to false doctrine. In Ephesians 4.14 It says that we henceforth be no more children, tossed to and fro, and carried about with every wind of doctrine, by the slight of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie and wait to deceive. So again, if the Lord did not desire this for all of us, he would not require this of the leader. And from Ephesians 4.14, it says, we, we, all of us, we aren't supposed to stay children in the faith. The pastor ought to be grown, but likewise we're supposed to grow up. First Corinthians four fourteen through sixteen says, "I write not these things to shame you, but as my beloved sons I warn you. For though ye have ten thousand instructors in Christ, ye have yet have ye not many fathers? For in Christ Jesus I have begotten you through the gospel. Wherefore I beseech you, be ye followers of me." Paul writes as a father, a loving parent, that you should grow up to be like. If we follow him, we should also grow up and fulfill these things. And so a quick word of warning associated with this in verse 6. Not a novice lest being lifted up with pride he fall into the condemnation of the devil. So here God connects pride as a chief warning for the novice. And that phrase, the condemnation of the devil, does that mean what he was condemned with, what the devil was condemned with, or does it mean what the devil will condemn you with? I would say yes. Pride is Satan's downfall. It was, and we saw that, or can see that in Isaiah 14, 12 through 14. And we won't read it, but there's a a lot of I will statements on there. Satan was in a position of power, and he was prideful, and I will be like God. I will be like the Most High. I will be lifted up. That's pride. And it was Satan's fall. So, when you think more highly of yourself than you ought to think, you're prideful. And Satan knows that you're no better than him, and he wants nothing more than to condemn you with his own very fault, because he fell to it. Boy, he would love to condemn you with that. And he knows God condemned him for it. And he knows God's no respecter of persons. And in 1 Peter 5, 5, it says, God resisteth the proud and giveth grace to the humble. So if you're going to be prideful, God's going to have to resist you. So Listen, pride in leadership is going to get you cast down. And pride in the word is going to lead you to false doctrine. You can see that in 1 Timothy 6.4. So grow up, gain experience, and stay humble. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, Lord, I thank you so much for your word. Thank you for these qualifications. and Lord, I know that we cover them quickly, but um, really that if we follow these things, and apply them to our lives. They'll help us look more like you. They'll help us better be used by you. And, and I pray that we would apply them to our lives and, and take them to heart and, and try, strive to be what you want us to be in this. And not establish a difference between us and, and lift the pastor up higher than we should. Lord, but, but to strive to grow up and to be mature. Um, help us to do that. Help us to, to remain humble um, as we walk and follow you help us to keep our testimonies pure, um, and help our desires to be what you would have them to be. Lord, that, that we would be willing to die to ourselves and our, and our desires so that you could use us to, to be ambassadors for you, to be used to, to share the gospel with others, Lord, that you might bring life unto them. Thank you for your word. Thanks for this time and, and the discussion that we'll have tonight. It's in your name we pray. Amen.